You're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Domenica Baroni-Peters. I'm named after my great-grandmother Domenica. She died the year I was born, so I never got to meet her. It's interesting to be named after someone you've never met. In the photos that I have of her, I can see some similarities. We share the same brown eyes, brown hair and olive skin. But while we share a name and the same dark features, I don't know the woman in the photographs. I wish I got the chance to meet her. This week's stories are about lost connections. Christina grew up speaking Italian, and because of this, was unable to communicate with her Sardinian grandmother. In our first story, Christina mourns the loss of culture and her connection to family. I'm a podcaster. No, I am an Italian podcaster. No, I am a Sardinian podcaster. Why do I feel the need to specify that I am Sardinian? It's because my Sardinian identity has been stolen by a government that convinced my Sardinian-speaking parents that uh, speaking with me in their mother tongue was not a good idea. Better to raise me in Italian, the language of the people who invaded and took over land, language and culture. Better to cut me out completely from my heritage. She was illiterate and she only spoke Sardinian while I was literate and fluent in three languages. Too bad none of them was. Uh, too bad none of them is Sardinian. Too bad I have never spoken directly to my grandmother, but always only through my mom, who had to be there to translate for me, for us. I don't know whether my grandmother would have liked to ask me how I was doing. I know I would have. I don't know whether she ever thought that it was a shame that we couldn't communicate directly. I know I have. When I was living abroad, first in Germany and uh, then in Australia, I used to call her every couple of months or so. My phone calls were pathetic as I I was unable to say anything past uh, Ciao, nonna, come stai? Che tempo fa? Hi, grandma, how are you? What's the weather like? She would reply something, something in Sardinian and I didn't understand. And uh, I would laugh nervously and she would laugh and we would laugh together. And I never knew what to say and I never understood when to end the conversation. And so there were these uh, long silences and giggling. And then I always ended repeating Adiosu, which was my rendition of goodbye in Sardinian before hanging up. (laughs) 
are so many things that I wish I had asked my nonna, whom I've always only seen dressed in black, hair covered with a dark brown headscarf as she was venturing outside her home, running errands or taking the goats grazing. I would have liked to ask her how did she feel growing up as an orphan and being married before turning 16, or what was it like giving birth to 11 children and losing two, one in childbirth and one as a young man in his 20s, crushed to death by a piece of machinery and brought back to his native Sardinia inside a wooden box. I would have liked to ask her about my mom, sent to some relatives who lived in another village to work there as a servant when she was aged six. Did you miss her, Nonna? And what was it like during the war, Nonna? What about when the German soldiers commandeered the biggest part of your house? And what about that young soldier that my mom always tells me about, the one that gave her chocolate and cried, looking into her toddler eyes? What was it like, Nonna? Today I would love even just to have a recording of our awkward conversations, our painful long-distance calls. I have none, of course. Those were times of phone boxes, before mobile phones, before small recording tools. Have you noticed anything strange since I started talking? Have you registered my strong accent? Have you realized that I'm speaking in English? I mean, have you noticed that I am complaining about my inability to communicate with my grandmother and uh, that I'm doing this not using that native language of mine, forced onto me by my Sardinian-speaking parents, but that I am using a third language? Your language. I mean, even if English is not your native language, you are able to understand what I'm saying because I am using a common language, the same language of most of the existing podcasts, the language in which most of the internet is written anyway. So, let me recap. I use English to complain about my Sardinian parents for raising me in Italian. And, by doing so, I add leverage to the English language, the same leverage that I recognize as being the reason for its cultural hegemony. Because, uh, let's face it, for the simple fact that I studied in Italy and uh, Italians are fixated with grammar, I can read and write in English better than your average native speaker. I remember an Italian friend of mine who attended some classes to learn English in Melbourne. He ran away horrified because someone had asked the teacher to explain what was the. And the teacher had replied that it was a pronoun. The. A pronoun. So, despite the fact that it is not my native language, 
My written English is excellent, and my spoken English is not bad either, if you can get over the accent. But I resent having to use this language in order to have my work heard and appreciated. Because, you see, Italy has just only discovered podcasts, and its audience isn't really demanding yet. So I have the choice to tell about my grandmother in Italian, speaking to a limited and mostly undemanding audience, or to ignore my native language, to jump into the arena of English-speaking podcasts, hoping to be seen and noticed. But, frankly, whom am I kidding? I know that, as an independent producer, my chances are small. Even taking part in festivals, there are people with stories far more urgent and dramatic than mine, in fact, I'm not as eager to participate, not anymore. So, why am I doing this now, today? I don't know. Or maybe I do. I think it's because suddenly I'm giving it a name. I realize that I am resenting as never before those who took away my past, my heritage, those who made it impossible for me to ask my grandmother. Hey, Nonna, how does it feel? Hey, Nonna, how does it feel? That story was produced by Christina Marres. You're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. At All The Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. In this next story, Ruth seeks to reconnect with her great-aunt Agatha and finds a way to give her a voice that she never had. Agatha, I did not know her at all. Later on, I learnt, and my brothers and sisters learnt that we did have a live Aunt Agatha, whom we had never seen, but um, she was confined to a, we learned, a mental institution. I know my mother used to visit her there. At this point, we had the dreaded influenza epidemic. Some say it was the Black Plague. At any rate, people were very ill and dying like flies. We eventually all got the wretched thing, but we managed to survive. We were all ordered to wear cotton masks. It was supposed to stop the spread of the disease. My sister Agatha refused to wear one and consequently got into trouble. Excerpt from a letter written by Margaret Harris to her granddaughter Catherine in 1983. Agatha was my great aunt. She refused to wear a face mask during the Spanish influenza epidemic in 1919 and because of that she was admitted to Callum Park Mental Hospital where she stayed for the rest of her life. That story 
about great-aunt Agatha has been going around my family for years, told and retold. But lately, in the middle of another epidemic, with all of us wearing face masks, I've wondered if it's actually true. Who was Agatha? And whatever happened to her? She was told to wear a mask. Everybody was told to wear masks. And she flatly refused and became very angry, upset, aggressive. And she was committed to, I presume, a lunatic asylum or something equivalent to it, whatever they had in those days. And there she spent the rest of her life. That's my Uncle Ian. In the early 1970s, he drove my grandmother twice to visit her sister Agatha. The first time they went, Ian waited in the car while my grandmother went inside. At the next visit, Ian asked if he could meet Agatha. He did, but by then she was elderly and no longer speaking. No eye contact. She was lying in the bed and looking straight at the wall out the window. Didn't look at us. At that time, my grandmother had been visiting Agatha for more than 50 years. But these visits had always been kept private and she didn't speak about her sister to anybody, not even her own children. The story always was, we're going to see an old friend. My mother would say, you know, we're going to see an old friend. But you didn't ask what old friend is it or whatever. (laughs) Probably be told, well, it's nothing to do with you. (laughs) That's my mother, Mary. She knew her other aunts and uncles, still has photographs of many of them. But Agatha is nowhere to be seen. I wanted to know more about my great aunt. Where did she go? With the help of my sister's research skills, I set out to find Agatha. 1904 Tomorrow Evening News. Agatha Quinlan, 16 years old. Awarded first class pass, College of Music, Piano Fort exams. 1913 Electoral Roll. Living in McMahon's Point, Sydney. Occupation, Tayloress. The only other references are in my grandmother's letter. My sister Agatha refused to wear one and consequently got into trouble. She, at that time, had a boyfriend, a Scotsman, who went to the war and was never heard of again. His troop ship was probably torpedoed. At any rate, she was never the same. My interpretation of what I was told was that Agatha had a romantic interest in a young man who, I believe, was killed during World War One, And she was obviously upset about that. And the Spanish flu, which is believed to have been brought back by soldiers returning home, people were required to wear masks. And she, for whatever reason, didn't want to do that. And that apparently was the start of the, the problem. My sister uncovers some government records. January 1920, Agatha is admitted to Darlinghurst Reception House. Patient was observed acting strangely in Hyde Park on two consecutive days, jumping about, yelling, laughing, acts eccentrically. Three days later, and the notes say that Agatha is lethargic and careless in dress, quiet, clean, but aggressive in manner at times. 
Her mother says she has been eccentric for years. Said patient certified insane to be taken charge of and detained. From here, Agatha is transferred to Callum Park Mental Hospital. But there's no mention anywhere in the notes about the influenza epidemic and a mandatory mask wearing had stopped six months earlier. So Agatha had come to the attention of authorities and she was sent to Callum Park, but it wasn't for refusing to wear a face mask. But the other question is, why did my grandmother keep Agatha a secret from the rest of the family? Well, I, I think it was something, you know, one didn't admit to one's neighbours, you know, that you had uh, a problem like that. You sort of get a very confused picture of what mental illness well, how it manifested in different people. Any mental or nervous illness was something one just didn't talk about. It's strange how there were certain subjects, you know, you, it, it happened, but you didn't talk about it. I think we find it quite shocking now that people would keep secrets such as a mental health problem in the family, but it's actually quite common and it has been right up until our present my name is Professor Catherine Colborn and I'm a historian of mental illness and institutions in Australia and in New Zealand and I'm currently the Head of School of Humanities and Social Science at the University of Newcastle in Australia. I think there is a, a shifting concept of mental health now but going back into the 19th century and into the 20th century there's been a lot of stigma attached to mental illness even institutions themselves tended to be built away from population centres and in countryside locations people could experience solitude and, and recover and have a, a very um, beautiful environment for hospitalisation, but at the same time they were hidden from public view. So there was no kind of awareness of, of those people. They were kind of out of sight. So we haven't been able to talk about mental health openly until those institutional days ended. Ian had his own theory about why Agatha was kept hidden. And a warning, Ian refers to potentially offensive language here, but it is reflective of how mental illness was seen at the time of which he is speaking. Why was she kept a secret from the family? Now, I grew up in a, a small farming community and one of the things I remember from early in life was you never marry a girl where there is a lunatic or idiot in the family because you could pass it on through heredity. So you kept them a secret so that nobody would know. The language by the late 19th and early 20th century was starting to change, but in the early days, words like lunatic or idiot were in common usage. They were used almost as diagnostic terms and they were also used in popular language or parlance in newspapers and so on. The language did change, however, and of course in our day we might talk about someone having lived experience of mental illness or living with mental illness rather than having it or being it. And I think that's where the language has really shifted away from the idea of an identity towards a, an experience. Uh, so I think we've we've seen an array, and language is a really important feature of the history of psychiatry, actually, because it does tell you something about the time period that you're talking about. The only language we have of Agatha is what was said about her. 
There's nothing of her own words or what she said or thought. Two years after her admission to Callum Park, there's a letter to the Chief Traffic Manager, New South Wales Railways, requesting accommodation for six patients and two nurses on the 9.45 train to Goulburn. Agatha is one of the patients. And also there's another letter addressed to the manager of Kenmore Hospital. Will you please arrange for them to be met at North Goulburn? There's a gap in the documents then for 52 years. Agatha's death certificate, 1974. Female, 84, never married, died, Lidcombe Hospital. Cause of death, chronic brain syndrome. My mother had said she'd gone to Agatha's funeral, but not to the burial. I'd like to know if there's any further trace of Agatha. Her grave is in Sydney's Rookwood Cemetery, and so I set out to find it. So I'm here at Rookwood Cemetery looking for Agatha's grave. I'm not exactly sure where it is. I think this is the right area because the dates of others here around. And I've got a number, so let's see. actually an unmarked grave. All the others in the row have names, dates, who someone was in relation to somebody else. Loved father, brother, loved sister, but not Agatha. She's the only one in the line without any inscription. It's like she's still missing. I'm very sad to think my aunt is lying in an unmarked grave and I would very much like for that situation to be, be remedied I, I feel that as a um, human being who was loved in her lifetime, her place of burial should have some identification. My sister does more research, this time to find out who owns the grave and how to get it marked. She organises an inscription to be done by the stonemasons. Agatha Quinlan, loved daughter of Matthew and Caroline. They're still not Agatha's words, but they are something to say she was here. And though we don't know what her life was like, she's linked now to family, past and future. Looking at it from the point of view of a, an adult, I just feel sad of what Agatha must have gone through. I mean, I, I hope that where she was institutionalised was hopefully not a place of horror. She would have been lacking in um, 
social contacts at least. But I've got no idea of, you know, how that worked out. I just hoped they had a piano for Agatha to play, that her first-class pass, piano fort, stayed with her and saw her through. I imagine her playing Bach or, or maybe Sati, who composed Gymnopédie in the same year Agatha was born. People said Sati was eccentric too. He refused to let people into his apartment and after he died they found it amassed this huge collection of umbrellas, like he was prepared for any kind of storm. There are lots of stories told about Sati. What are our stories, the ones we tell in family? I had a great aunt. Her name was Agatha, and she loved a Scottish man who died in World War I. In 1920, she was admitted to Callum Park, and she stayed in care for the rest of her life. My grandmother often visited her, but didn't tell anyone. Agatha played the piano, and she was seen as eccentric. She's buried in Rookwood Cemetery. Rest in peace, Agatha. That story was produced by Ruth Melville. Dan Simo was the supervising producer. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past, present and future. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarung lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun. And our production manager is Danny Stewart. Matilda Fay and Emma Pham are our social media producers. Our web producer is Connor Hughes. And Lydia Yosefova is our community and events coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. Thanks for listening. <laughs>